to import this a podcast for humans uh co-host today is not alex gainer because alex unfortunately is unable to join us yet again he is currently uh according to the intel we've been able to gather uh trapped inside of a secret nsa uh bunker and uh we will inform you as more information unfolds uh so filling in for him today is uh the mysterious uh, twisted, uh, man of the name Glyph, which is an interesting name for a man. Would it be more appropriate if it were the name for a woman? Is that, uh, kind of, kind of more of a female vibe to you or? Glyph. No, I, I feel it's kind of like a genderless name. Like if you were an androgynous person, Glyph would be a fantastic name. Yeah, you know, that's interesting that you mentioned that, because I used to be very much like, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog, you know, I'm just an abstract person. And as I learned more about, like, privilege and how you, uh, you kind of carry it with you no matter what, I started being like, nah, I'm a dude. <laughs> I'm a white dude, it's, it's okay. I, uh, you see, you're not, you're not just a, a symbol of uh, graphene. Oh, yeah. Oh. Nope. I, I I am a real person. I am a human, in fact, which makes me an appropriate co-host for this podcast, since I can understand the target demographic. It is a podcast for humans. Well, I think that he, one of the, the the primary activities that humans do over the course of evolution, uh, if if there is such a thing, let's try not to offend anybody. Uh, is is, uh, you know, language in the spreading of information. So uh, graphs are, like, uh, extremely primary uh, technology that we use to do that. And so your name is, uh, your name precedes you, sir. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I did a blog post about it a long time ago about, uh, uh, it was many, many years in the making, but I, I explained, like, where the symbol comes from. And it's uh, it's actually the the icon avatar that you'll see, that you'll see from me online. Uh, is from an invented language, but it means human. And the four different like surrounding symbols are different activities that humans partake in. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's um, um, it's it, it's sort of a, an abstract representation of like um, what makes humans humans. So like uh, the green um, the green diamond represents thought, and the the uh, Sort of backwards L is playing hockey, uh, communication. communication. <laughs> um, and oh, the, I see. Uh, I see. It's scribing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's like a it's like a pet paper leaving a li- or a pen leaving a line on paper, um, and then uh, the the little blue fork thingy is uh, is communication and connectedness, like s- society. I just see uh, the USB symbol. 
Uh, yeah, well, so that's it's it's from a highly advanced uh, cyborg civilization, so it's kind of the same thing there. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they they they're, managed they're to adopt USB C US... completely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it looks like it's completely parallel. If you look at normal USB, one of them is uh, above the other. Mm-hmm. So th- this one is like, yeah, very egalitarian more, society. More... <laughs> And what's the red one? It looks like uh, is that like having a house or a village? Uh, that that's actually like a, an anvil, basically. Oh. Like it's a work surface. It's it's the uh, making. It represents the uh, act of creation. So there's no community represented here at all. This is very egocentric. No, no, no. the the community is the uh, um, is the blue thing. Like that, the little fork is it's the one and the many. Like the many on top and the little. Oh, okay. That's, Hierarchy. It's about um, it's about uh, pyramids. Yeah. Well. It's, it, <laughs> It's a frame of reference in a social graph. Um, and so the listeners know you, um, even if they don't, from the project, which is basically older than time. Uh, tw- it, the original Node.js, uh, Twisted. Yep. Which uh, is like the most... So there's two projects that I consider to be like over my head. when it, I haven't really dove into either. But I've used them both, um, and SQL Alchemy and Twisted, and I consider both of them to be like some of the best, uh, finest engineering in the open source Python land. Basically, like best design. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, it's it's nice to. It's nice although to although I find them both extremely un- unapproachable because they're, <laughs> because they're so engineered, you know. I like to build on top of them, not not with them. <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, the uh, it's it's too bad that you find it unapproachable, but kind of the whole point uh, of Twisted is that Unix is just terrible, and like nobody should know anything about it. Oh, and, really? And unfortunately, I think you're the first to. person I've ever heard say that. Well, most of the people who uh, who say Unix is great and the Unix philosophy is beautiful have never had to call IOCTL or F control. So uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. Have you ever read um, Ted Zubia's blog post, um, Taco Bell programming? No, that sounds great, though. Um, it's I love it's really it. beautiful. It's from like 2009 or something, and it made it was a big influence on me. Basically, it's you know everyone's inventing all these amazing new technologies to do like uh, MapReduce and and stuff like that, and we think we're solving all these great new problems. And he's like, Linux had this shit forever. It just used like XARGs, basically. <laughs> <laughs> basically, and it solves all your problems. Uh, so it's Taco Bell programming, you know, Taco Bell has an entire menu made of like the same eight ingredients. So he's saying you can do the same with, with Unix basically, but Python is kind of toxic toward, not toxic, hostile towards that style of programming. Cause we don't really have a good, a very pleasurable to use sub process API. Yeah. I mean, Twisted tries very hard to, to give a kind of good full featured sub process API. Um, but uh, it was one of those things, like uh, in the same way that nobody was ever supposed to use like the parentheses and Lisp because those were like too hard for humans to to grok. And the idea Wait, is that they. Would... I've never heard <laughs> this before. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's maybe even the original McCarthy paper. Uh, They're optional. He... No, no, no. Uh, so the idea was he presented this theory of computation, which involved this notion of like a list, which was a data structure that at the head of the list would be like a function. Or the code to invoke, and then the symbols at the tail of the list, which was everything else, would be the arguments. And 
This was a kind of beautiful, like reductionist model of programming. And then he developed this notation called S expressions, which where you put a parenthesis and then you have like the symbol separated by spaces and then a close parenthesis to indicate a list. But he was like, of course, nobody would actually want to program with this. So, <laughs> so we're going to have like a different thing that we'll add later called M expressions, but that involves building a more sophisticated parser. And M expressions, I think the M was for middle or something, but it was to, so that you would have like three plus four instead of plus three, four. Um, so that you would, and, and then they like implemented, so the, uh, McCarthy wrote this paper and then somebody, I forget the, the, one of his grad students, I think actually implemented the interpreter. And when he implemented the interpreter, he was like, I don't know how to do this M expressions thing. It's way too hard. But S expressions are easy because, you know, you just check up the octets of parenthesis and then you kind of push some onto the stack. So he did that. And then uh, it, and then people started writing code for it and it just lasted forever and they could never get rid of it. And that's Lisp now. Wow. Um, and I'm sure there's some dialect available that has the M style. Uh, you know, like esoterically. I, I'm sure there must be. Um, there's so many. But that's not as, as dead, basically. Yeah, that's not a thing that ever really happened. Because a lot of people who started programming using the uh, S expressions kind of liked their... One of the things people say about Lisp is it has no syntax, right? Like, if you look at the that the text that you write well, out, it, you can... it is the syntax, right? Right. Yeah, like, you can see the data structure of the code that's getting the evaluated. The data is the code, and the code is the data. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I've always wanted to get into... Lisp, and I experimented with Scheme when I was in college, uh, and I would I like scoured the library for any Scheme books, and they they had they always had like one that was checked out, and I could never get it because uh, it was harder to get information about it than it was like 2006 or something 2007, mm-hmm. um, and I they didn't teach it at my school, uh, but I was like really excited about the idea of it because it's just like this is basically as minimal of a language as possible, and um, I, I'm a purist, so it just appealed to me. And uh, I did, I got like, I can't remember, there's some package that they used to distribute for learning. They still probably do is like Mr. Scheme or something like that. Um, Dr. Scheme. Dr. Scheme, yeah, that's it. And uh, I play with it and I just, ah, oh, like my brain doesn't work that way. Like I tried to just write like average functions and it, I, I, I don't know. I, it, I, 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 if I spend more time at it, I'm sure I'd be fine, but. It, it, it's not natural for me, like um, like something like a standard, more uh, functional language or procedural language would be. Yeah, you know, there's a that's a, kind of an interesting thing. Like, did, did I, I say functional? Sorry, you said functional. I didn't you mean, didn't mean that. did not mean yeah. that at all. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, a human a human readable language like Haskell. It's just like it's transparent and clear. Um, I I haven't seen Haskell code, but I okay. I, I know about the Haskell compiler. <laughs> uh, Anything other than the fact that it takes an hour and a half to run, or well, yeah, the six hundred megabyte binaries. Yeah. Um, so Haskell, uh, or so, so rather, uh, I've been writing writing Lisp constantly um, ever since I started programming. Um, you know, I, I moved from HyperCard to uh, oh, wow. to Java to C plus plus, and then to C, and then to um, Java again, and then Python, and I. So, but the one constant through all of that was like I was always pretty much using Emacs. Um, I took a break and used Sublime Text for a couple of years at one point. But like, um, I so all of that time I was both reading and writing Lisp. I have like my first party Emacs Lisp directory is about five thousand lines of code. I have about thirty thousand lines of libraries that I've got installed from various places. 
and, and uh, version control, of course. Oh yeah, no in version control. There's some DevOps. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> do you so, do you use uh, Emacs in a, in a command line environment, or do you have a, a GUI that you use it in? Oh no, absolutely a GUI. Uh, okay. I mean, I use it in the command line environment if I needed to get something out. Which server. one do you use? Uh, I just brew install Emacs. I use the sort of upstream. Okay, because there used to be like Aqua Emacs, and there was a bunch of them. Yeah, I mean it's it's weird. Like GNU is always the slowest to implement stuff in their Emacs version. Like X Emacs was famously a fork because they didn't have even X support. Oh um, really? See, that was the one that that's how I've ever had experience with Emacs. As a kid, I had X Emacs, and I liked the games that were built into it, <laughs> <laughs> like the Eliza psychiatrist thing. Yep, Meta X Doctor. Yeah, um, yeah. So I recently revisited all of those because I installed uh, achievements mode into Emacs. Oh, does it give you like Xbox achievements? Yeah, yeah. So you get, uh, well, you get achievements for playing each one of the games. You get achievements for using various disabled commands. You get achievements for hacking it in various ways. Um, I'm, uh, they also give you achievements just for typing. So I think I'm up to the NaNoWriMo achievement. Nice. I've written a NaNoWriMo Thirty thousand words. Yep, and uh, so I'm working that's my way fun. towards uh, Proust. That's that's the goal. What, um, what's the the top level? Um, I th- I think it's it's either Proust or maybe Dostoevsky. I forget the um, but it's just one of those guys. Um, it's so beautiful, but so pathetic at the same time. <laughs> um, but yes, I I I write tons and tons of Lisp, and I have to say, uh, yeah, I kind of it just doesn't quite stick to memory like python does like it doesn't feel as natural yeah um, and i i suspect i wish that i had some empirical data for this but i suspect that there's a uh some kind of human cognitive thing that makes like crappy procedural code just easier to understand on some level what um, what, may, what makes you say crappy well so code that's like maintainable and parallelizable and um you know, doesn't have weird second order effects is, is typically kind of more functional in style, right? Create new things rather than mutate existing things, have expressions that return values rather than step-by-step recipes that do things. Um, yeah. And I, I think there's actually pretty good research around like, well, certainly for parallelism, right? If you want to do parallel programming, you want to have a data structure that you know nobody else could possibly be touching just by the, stru- the structure of how it's created and where it's passed. You want things that are immutable, so you don't have to worry that somebody might change it in the future. Um, and uh, and so, like, I, I agree with those aspirations, but I also understand that like there's a reason why there are more um, Monad tutorials than programs in Haskell, right? Like, <laughs> is this stuff is really hard to understand, um, and that the tools that you need to kind of manage uh, functional abstractions are very challenging to wrap your head around and to keep your head wrapped around. And if you, if you looked, uh, you know, you look at discussions in the Python community, you do have the occasional thing like the, the post I just wrote about the adders library about how to like define basic data structures. But like most of the stuff in the Python community is about like libraries to do things like manipulate images, parse data formats, um, get shit you know. done. Yeah. And whereas a lot of the discussion in the functional community is always like okay it's i've like got a philosophical new way to... musings basically yep. a multi zygomorphic 
like uh, posts. That's I, that's I one of the reasons that I've been attracted to Python too. I, I was attracted to it because of the design. Effectively, I felt like it was the best designed language that I encountered, both syntactically and just the way the optic model works, and mm-hmm. the, the fact that you know, it, in a way, it is. It could be considered a functional language just because it's not truly object oriented. Have you heard that argument before? Um, I'm not sure that. I think that those are different or disjoint categories. I'm, I'm curious what you mean by it, though. Like, what do you mean by it? Well, the, the argument that I've heard is, is just effectively that basically what Python has uh, for classes and objects is we closures effectively with, uh, you know, you can have, it's just, you know, it's a dictionary with some functions attached to it, effectively. And you're modifying uh, that object each time you call one of those functions. Um which, in from what I understand, in a truly object-oriented system, that isn't the way it works. Well, I mean, so that's not really how it works in a functional system either, because like in, in a functional system, you'd have like a literal closure, which where you would put some values onto the stack, and then you'd have functions that like capture them and hold onto those, or keep a reference to those slots, and then you call those functions, and they can manipulate that kind of stack frame in the background. Um, I mean, that's kind of what's happening now, right? Well, except in Python, it's not a stack frame; it's a dictionary. Yeah, it's a dictionary yeah. that comes into existence when you instantiate the object, and and anybody else can see that dictionary in the entire system. Yeah, right? one of the that's one of the things about. I love about it is that it's so transparent. Yeah, I, I that is that is the source of both much of my fascination with Python and also the worst thing about it, um, especially as a library author. Like the fact you that you can do anyone, some crazy shit with that too. Yeah. <laughs> and that's fine. I'm I'm down with the crazy shit. The problem is. Sometimes you do it by accident. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's true. And, and, or if you're like new to the, you know, you realize that you can do the crazy shit, you'll start doing it all the time, you know, and you really right. don't need to. Mm-hmm. Be like, you know, have like properties that just appear out of nowhere for no reason. You know. Mm-hmm. Start sticking things onto other objects, like add public attributes to your favorite library without telling them like that, you know, all of those things make, make meta classes that change the type of your object every third time you instantiate, (laughs) which you can do, you know, it's possible. See, that's Um, fantastic. See, people love Ruby because you can do all kinds of crazy shit. In Python, you can do some really crazy shit. (laughs) Um... Yeah, I, I do think that there's, there's this uh, – one of the epigrams in programming from Alan Perlis is that uh, every sufficiently large program becomes Rococo and then Rubble. Um, and this is, I think, where one of the problems with Python is that it, it allows you to grow these systems that if you are disciplined about yeah. making them maintainable, they will be super maintainable and readable because of its you know, as elegant aesthetic. But then you can also make such a mess that no one can ever <laughs> hope to recover from it. Um, and that's, and that's maybe, a, but that's true in any language. It just manifests itself differently. Like in Java, that's a completely true statement. That more structure is more informed, and like you know, but you know, you can write so much code and have it be so uh, monolithic and you know archaic that it's equally unmaintainable. Well, I feel like Java sort of narrows the band a little bit because at the the worst Java code that you can write. You've still got a type signature. <laughs> you know, like you can still know if something's an int or not, right? Like they can hide it from you. They can have functions that take object, object, object. But if they want to like add the two things together, somewhere at the bottom, it has to resolve to a thing that takes two integers. You but, to- but you might have forty-five different versions of that same function. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that you can't write unmaintainable code in Java. I'm just saying like there's only so bad you can make it because that the same expression will always mean the same thing, which also means it constrains the top end of your creativity, right? Like in Python, you can write these libraries 
that use magical attributes and use properties and use all kinds of like bizarre metaprogramming to make it sort of into a DSL that that you read it and you may not understand exactly what's happening procedurally, but you understand the intent super clearly, which makes it possible for the library to kind of change its implementation strategy out from under you. NumPy is a great example of this, right? Like yeah. you see like array slices and addition and subtraction and division, whatever, and like it's doing all of this bizarre kind of extra expression construction stuff. Uh, under the covers, and then it's executing these massively vectorized operations. Um, but you look at it, and you can understand what's going on. Yeah, and a much simpler example of, of that is just in requests. I have a, a you know the dot text dot content uh, properties, and you know it's they're basically what properties do, which is they do other shit when you access them. But yeah, there's a lot that goes on. There's content checking, and like if it's not there in the headers, it'll like try to detect automatically, and you know there's this whole loop of things. But when you're using it. Because you shouldn't need to do all that stuff. It's just simply access the property, and mm-hmm. like I, you know, I, in Java, I don't think that would ever be possible. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some stuff you can do, but you can't you would, you would have to have it. like a magical function that's just like get content, and like it would do all that stuff. And then you'd have to have other ones that are like less magical, or it's like just get the content. <laughs> right. Well, and in in um. Uh, in the case of Java, like you could mostly achieve a similar effect, but you'd have to put the parentheses after it every time, um, which is fine. Whereas, whereas, like on the numpy side of things, like if you've ever seen any Java numerical code, it's really heinous, right? Because you have to, you can't use plus or minus or whatever. You have to use these dot methods on everything to assemble like a expression object and then execute it, and so it rapidly becomes unreadable. Um, even though you're, it's, it's much simpler from perspective. Like there's fewer tools at your disposal. Anybody reading it would know what each individual method call meant. Um, another great example of that is uh, RethinkDB. Like I just started playing with this um, thing recently, uh, and I have yet to put it into production. So I can't I wanna... remember what's unique about that one, but I remember being very interested in it when it came out. Uh, so it's natively event driven. That's the main thing. Like you can, you could do a thing like a Postgres listen notify, except with Postgres, when you do a listen, the notify just gives it a value. So like you just give, put a string in there. And so if you want a table that tells you about each new value that arrives that meets some where clause, you just have to keep doing that query over and over again. Um, every time you get a notification. So you need application logic to tell you like this string corresponds to this query. And so every time you see this string, do this query. Um, so you have to build a lot of manual scaffolding up. And in MySQL, it's like, well, you just can't do that. So never mind. <laughs> but in Rethink, you can just say, here's the query. Just tell me when new stuff arrives. And it's really like, that's if you're writing an event-driven real-time application, that's totally the way that you want to be thinking. Uh, and it eliminates a ton of duplicative work because you don't have to develop a signaling system to tell your application what query it needs to do. You just say, like, these are the values I'm interested in. So that should be a field that you're relatively familiar with, being the author of Twisted. Oh, yeah. They, they, one of the things that I look for when I evaluate a new storage engine is do they have drivers that support Twisted? And what I usually mean by that, because nobody actually supports Twisted out of the box, is all, <laughs> I'm just like, can you give me the goddamn file descriptor? Like, can I just, can I reach into the guts of your stupid library and pull out the one thing I need to put this into an event loop? How and often does that happen? Huh? Oh, sorry. I interrupted you. You're answering my question. Uh, so Postgres has it and like oh. nobody else does. Of course Postgres um, has it. <laughs> now, and, you, so, and do you feel like you need that? Can you do it in pure Python? Uh, well, so 
if I don't have that, it just means that I need to shunt all the database I/O off to a thread, which yeah. is what usually end up doing anyway. So uh, I mean, and you end up needing to do that if you got a twisted app that integrates with, like, let's say, some Django code or something. Like, you need to farm that off to threads anyway. So it's not a huge tragedy, but it, it's super cool to be able to just natively get it deferred back uh, for a query or something like that. And you use and it's like CFFI for the file descriptor, or no, no, it's just a file descriptor. So you're just you just write, yeah, it's writing just to it. Yeah, so you st- stick it in your select loop, and that's awesome. You know, you're off to the races. Um, but with rethink, it wasn't even like, oh, good, I can get the file descriptor out. It was like, here's the twisted API. It returns deferreds. It's a first party thing. It's part of the official rethink driver. Um, and so have at it. Like I didn't have to write anything. I just made some expression objects and sent them over the wire. And but the reason I brought it up was. Um, uh, the reason that I mentioned the uh, hang on a second, my devices are binging. I need to should I, do not disturb before I start a podcast. Um, so the reason I brought RethinkDB up is that they have a query expression API, which is a lot like SQL Alchemy, where you never really handle a query statement. You never build a string. You just get a table object and the table object has column objects and the column objects can be divided or added or you can so use it's, it's equal effectively like an object database no no it's it well it's a document database so it's sort of like mongo um except it keeps your data so <laughs> uh the uh so you, you have these expression objects which you then you build and then after you've built them you send them over the wire and in python oh, that's right i remember that now yeah, yeah. So you, so in need, python, you need a rich client in order to use it uh, pretty much. They they do have a query language under the covers. And is it uh, is that the one that's where it, it's? I mean, Mongo, you write them in, in like JSON or something. Is it is, I, is it similar? I think that actually the, the database engine has like a restricted JavaScript yeah. interpreter in it. Okay. Like, so you you actually are sending JS queries. Um, the DB itself is in C plus plus. I'm not quite sure how full the the JavaScript implementation is, but. Um, what you're doing when you when you use these query objects is the query language does exist so that you can implement new clients, but they're pretty much like unless you are providing an administrative interface where like a person's actually going to type queries into a web like, browser, like, like Microsoft Access, right? Like unless you're doing that, you every single feature of the query language is exposed in every single client API. Hmm. Um, and in Python, that looks like an expression, and it's very readable. And in Go, it looks like a ton of chained method calls that are very tedious because you just don't have that ability to build the sort of DSL style. Um, now, anyway. is it using like any AST hacks to do that, or is it just using pretty straightforward uh, constructs in Python? Uh, it uses a little bit of operator overloading, but it doesn't use any like weird, you know, at, like literal eval or, or any strange uh, reparsing of your Python code. Like it's it's valid syntactic Python, um, and in fact, I mean, it's not just syntactically valid. It you build a query object, and then you can address that object as you normally would. Like you, the, the act of creating a query does not talk to the database engine. Yeah, you talk to the database engine when you're done. You've built it. You send it. So it's like inherently transactional, but like one at a time, basically. Uh, actually, they have a different consistency model. Um, they have uh, atomic single document updates, yeah. which um, 
which is interesting because they actually uh, they went to uh, uh, Afer of uh, Jepson fame. They got him to do a Call Me Maybe post on their database engine, and they very nearly passed. They like he found one issue about like if you're doing cluster resizing really rapidly and you are also doing concurrent writes all over the place, you can occasionally get write reordering. But uh, they they fixed that, and now as far as he knows, it's consistent. And, like, it's funny is this I don't see that being used very much. It's pretty new. Um, and yeah. I think people are super reluctant to adopt and it's new it is not open source, right? No, it is. It's totally open source. Oh, okay. But but you can pay for it. Yes, they there's they're a support business. Um, and I think that kind of makes sense for them because you know, if you have a uh, you really want somebody to call if your storage engine stops working. Like that's kind of important man um, you should see well, i used to work for netapp and you should see the um the pricing for support is pretty amazing because you know if you're running your entire infrastructure for your fortune 500 company off of some storage uh you know it does you you pay quite a bit of money for like one hour turnaround time for anything ever <laughs> <laughs> it's it's an amazing amount of money it's cool it's just, i just find it fascinating you know, say a company like Apple or something was to ever use something like that. It'd be like, you know, if you need one engineer to come by within two hours, it's like, you know, $1.5 million. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I don't know. I feel like if Apple wanted something like that, the SLA would have to be like, you're already here and you're already fixed. Oh, yeah, they have on, on-site <laughs> as well. That's that's even more expensive. I think that's like $4 um, million a quarter or something. But, uh, yeah, but I don't That's I don't not know insider information. I found that out from Googling, so. <laughs> <laughs> Um, um, so I, I wanted to, so, you know, twist it. Uh, so Node is a thing, <laughs> effectively. And uh, so Twisted has been doing, you know, everyone, when Node came out, everyone was excited and there was a lot of hype because it was this new cool idea uh, that no one had ever seen before, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Twisted has been doing this for, for ages. Well, actually, I want to... Um back that up a little bit because uh, in fact one of the things that sort of bugged me a little bit about node when they did their announcement so to be fair they did put twisted right on their like front page oh, like, did they it's really? like twisted for javascript that was their first cool um, well that's so not there anymore <laughs> uh so i feel like it's not that the the authors didn't give it credit the authors totally did um but well i'm talking about from a community perspective like what you know why is node so why is it blowing up? Why is mm-hmm. it? Why is the velocity curve of its growth exponential at the moment? Uh, and Twisted's has been going up slowly for like fifteen years, and now it's slowly declining. <laughs> uh, I don't think Twisted is slowly declining. Well, on, go- fact- on Google Trends, at least. Oh, um, okay, that's interesting. Uh, so I'm kind of curious to see what the what the trend is going to be at the end of this year because um, let's see. I just I find that interesting. I think it's a marketing thing. You know, mm-hmm. obviously there's a lot of hype. I'm not saying one's better than the other. I think Node is great for what it is because you, you you can't. It's you know it's inherently built in a system that's designed for event driven programming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so and you know and Twisted it's really easy. I haven't written Twisted much, but you know, you can write any Python, so you can really fuck it up pretty easily. And I think you have, well, maybe it requires more understanding to do 
twisted. Like you need to be a bit more of an engineer as opposed to in Node, you just kind of slap shit together. Well, I, I don't know if there's, I don't think there's a simple explanation, basically. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just looking at this Google Trends page, and dang, don't right, this uh, it did, it is in decline. Um, very slowly though, like only if you look at the course of like a decade. Oh yeah, it's, it's still sustained like. It's it's always gone up, but it's not going up anymore. <laughs> um, you have a so great the, like twelve year runway there before it hits bottom. <laughs> um, yeah, well, so the, one of the interesting things is just subjectively, um, and also Twisted's really interesting because if you just look for Google searches for Twisted, like there's plenty of those, um, <laughs> you know. Uh, and so oh, it's hard I to tell. Your Google, uh, like your search engine query results and your analytics are interesting. Yeah, they sometimes people show up and they don't know what they're looking at. Um, <laughs> so yeah, you I think still do that thing where you you land on the page and it's highlighting the word that you searched for. I think Twisted was doing that for a while. Like if you did Twisted, uh, I don't know, blue, and like the word blue would be highlighted. Oh, yeah, I think that we have, um, I think our search engine does that. I don't know if we do it from Google, though. Oh, um, okay, never mind. But, yeah, it's that's track. Like, we don't, we basically don't control that. Drove me, um, used to drive me crazy. Uh, I am glad that that seems to be in decline as a general UI pattern because it was not helpful. Um, anyway, the uh, if you, uh, the thing about Twisted, I think for a long time there's this big impedance mismatch with the community. Right, and it wasn't really with the Python language because Python could do anything. Python had select and async core and everything in the standard library, so there wasn't it wasn't like async IO was unheard of or event driven programming was unheard of. It was just uh, it was, a system. It wasn't packaged like nicely enough. It wasn't presented to users, and the users who were using it were like mostly doing back end kind of uh, DB stuff. Like if you if you were writing a Mac app, which you could do in Python since forever, like yeah. PyObjectC is super old. Um, the uh, it would hurt, but you can do it. Uh, it doesn't really hurt even. Like Apple added support for Python to Xcode in uh, probably something like 2006, um, and you could like just go in and write Python classes, and it would and Interface Builder picks them up. It's still in there. Huh. Um, so like if you had you had to know what you were doing. Um, like you, I, yeah, you had to know how to do it without Python first. Right. Yeah, you, you had to know how to. You didn't have to know Objective C, but you did have to understand the semantics of the message dispatch runtime. Oh which God. Maybe was a little more involved than because that's all it is. It's sending messages back and forth to Objective C, right? Right. It's just like it, and it's and what sending messages means is calling a function. There's a C function, obc message sent, <laughs> that it just calls yeah. with a string and like. I don't remember how I know about this, but I've, I've used it at some point. I'm, so I remember yeah, so Objective C being. Not fun. Um, I, I use PyObjective-C every day. I have like six apps that I wrote running right now. Uh, like I have an app that uh, – do you use LastPass? Uh, no, I use the uh, – I like iCloud Keychain. Oh, cool. Um, but yeah, so I use LastPass because I, I use it to – I do use uh, it for work, I, uh, LastPass, but I just stick to the web client. I don't log, install anything. Well, one of the reasons I use it is that I like the I like having like a native client for like logging into World of Warcraft. I like having a, um, a command line client so that I can provision secrets onto my like Linux boxes, and then I like having um, uh, the browser integration. Right, those are all nice sort of features to have, and I use the same secret store. Yeah, I have to copy across and paste all these a lot. environments. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, so one of the things that you do is they've got this hotkey in their Mac app that pops up the window, but they have this annoying bug. Uh, you, you know, the window pops up, and then you type a thing, and you hit uh, Command-C, you copy in whatever is selected, that's like your fuzzy find found, uh, it copies the password, which is super handy, because you would like go to an app, you, type your... Usually. Right. <laughs> so there's this one problem, which is that uh, when that, that window pops up, the way that it takes focus, like uses some non-standard APIs, I think, and it doesn't return focus to the password field you're focused on. What? Which is the most annoying thing. And I reported this bug to them years ago. Well, that's, like, that's good. You have to be a little decisive about where you paste that password. <laughs> I, I guess. I, anyway, I, I want it to return focus. Like I'm in a password field. I'm hitting the thing because I want to paste it into that field. I don't want to accident. And I don't want to accidentally paste it into something else. Uh, now, to their credit, it removes focus from everything. So if you were to just paste it, you just get a beep. Man, I hate, but, I hate those apps so much. We had but, to, we, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I, we had the craziest thing happen at Heroku a very long time ago. It hasn't happened again. So it was a bit of a horror story. But we, it was successful. Uh, it was a, fr- a friend of mine, uh, I guess it's fine if I say, Brian Veloso, who's a member of the Python community, or was. He does these great, he does live video game streaming now. And he contacted me one day and he's like, all my shit is gone on Heroku. I'm like, what? <laughs> he's like, it's, just, oh, it's not here. Yeah. Or I think it was a, a certain app was gone. And he's like, that's my dad's like website or my you know, father-in-law. And I'm like, uh, okay. So we like, get on it immediately because it's like, that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so good, good to know that that's a supported feature for Roku. All of your stuff isn't just supposed to disappear. <laughs> no, that's... not at all. Like, that's like an impossible situation. So we, <laughs> we, we get on... Um, I, I'm in Poland, like for a, a, for a conference. Uh, anyway, so I, I talked to support, and like, like the whole company is on this immediately. They're like, "What the hell's going on?" And it took a little bit to figure it out, but it was his password manager. His password manager hit went to the bottom of the screen on one of the pages and hit the confirm delete this app button for him. Oh man. Cause it was the bottom most button. And so it must be uh-huh. again. Yeah. Oh, and it, yeah, so we'll, well, we fixed that bug, you know, by like ignoring, by checking if that, you know, refer or whatever they do is there. Uh, yep. but like, you know, that's just the fact that a plugin could do that just makes me, I'll never install one ever, ever. <laughs> well, yeah. So I, I, um, but he got his stuff I, back by the way, everything was fine. We recovered it. Well, that's good. Um, but yeah, when I when I use my uh, like LastPass, the first thing I do every time I put it on a new computer is I go in and I go to the like autofill option and I turn everything off. I'm like, never autofill anything. I will hit the button if I want a password. Thank you very much. I will click log in myself. Um, and because not only that, but like LastPass has kind of a dodgy security reputation. And some people think that means you shouldn't trust it. But in fact, they've never had an exploit in like their core password management stuff it's all well it's all encrypted right it, and it's encrypted the right way and they use and they're like they the, the command line client is open source so if you want to know like what ciphers they're using and all that stuff like you don't even have to do any reversing or analysis you just like, look at the code see i really um, like using the defaults like i used to use custom mail clients and custom xyz all the time and in recent years i've switched to just like using mail.app which i really like like you know what same here once you accept it it's really great uh, and you know, and it makes the whole experience better. Use Safari, and uh, and I also use uh, you know Keychain, and I it's really good. Like it's real, it's it's great software. It's a little, I mean, it's a little annoying, 
but but it's like in a good way, right? <laughs> it's a good password manager, and it you know it syncs with Safari automatically, and all my devices have all my stuff, and like I trust it, you know, and it mm-hmm. and that that's what that, that's good, uh, but it's not very user friendly. Like if you want to export all your passwords, there's really no easy way to do that. Uh, well, and, and there's also that thing where like you can't just hit the one button and be like. I want to extract password for like apps that don't have a nice keychain integration. No, well, um, no, I have to open up, open up keychain manager and then find it and and open it and show it and then copy it. Right. And Not I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. Like, that's okay. Cause that's like, it should be hard to get to my passwords. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, the point of this whole uh, shaggy dog story was that uh, I was really annoyed by this bug. And so I wrote a, a Mac app it took about eight minutes that observes focus change notifications, remembers the last focused window, and then notices when it's the LastPass app, like remembers the previous one before it. And when the LastPass app goes away and there's no focused window, it's like, I'll put the focus back on that one. So why didn't you just use AppleScript for this? Um, so AppleScript uh, can't listen for the notifications. Really? Like AppleScript can easily make the change, but building having a data structure that like, You'd have to trigger it some, but with something else. Yeah, I mean, there's probably some way to like write an Apple Script app that that like listens on stuff. Oh, you could and, probably. Can you tell uh, with PyObjective C like run this chunk of Apple Script? You don't need to because all Apple Script is doing. Apple Script is just a front end to like scripting bridge, basically. So you just call scripting bridge from Python. There's a native like Objective C API for doing the things that Apple Script does. Okay, um, so you don't have to and, use the English language thing. No, no, you just have to and, – and the English language thing's weird too because like you've got all these special case syntax rules whereas the methods are like – I actually – I have a setup in my like uh, – so I have, I have bpython. That's like my main Python interpreter mm-hmm. and I have it automatically check when it starts up if Twisted's installed into its virtual end. And if it is, it uses bpython erwid and with the core foundation reactor which means that it's like integrated into the GUI event loop. So if I wanted to like make a core location query or pop up a window or do any other Mac API thing, I can tab complete my way around Objective-C APIs oh, cool. and just call them interactively. That's like back um, when I was doing um, CLR stuff with, with um, whatever it's called, Iron Python. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's, uh, it's even nicer because like when you're doing CLR stuff with Iron Python, you have to sometimes like, dispatch a thread or do like an await on the main thread to like get back results from certain operations. <laughs> but with, um, uh, with an interactive Python prompt that's hooked into the twisted event loop, like I just get callbacks. So I can just write a function that like gets invoked and prints out the result when, if there's an asynchronous thing or a block or whatnot that I need to run with GCD, like it all just kind of like nicely integrates. Um, so I wrote, I, I frequently write apps that will do things like, um, like at one point I was like, man, I'm spending way too much time, like checking my email. So I wrote an app that would watch how long I spent on mail.app oh God. and just sent me an, a user notification after like a couple hours and be like, yeah, it's been too long. You should, uh, you should chill with the email. That's good. That's good for cultivating self-awareness. Exactly. And you know, there's apps like rescue time, which will sort of do that, but rescue time likes to aggregate by sort of these very coarse, um, yeah, like, like nine like hours a day and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it won't like – so if I wanted something fine grain like that, little Python app. Let me see if I've got any others that are sitting in my menu bar right now. Um, oh, that's the last pass one. All the um, stuff I've written that I use is CLI. 
like I wrote an emoji uh, um, keyboard for the command line recently. Oh, yeah, and I totally forgot to install that. I saw that and it looked awesome. It was EM keyboard? Yeah, yeah. So you just type M space like cake, uh, sparkles, cake, sparkles, and it puts it in your keyboard. And then if you want to <laughs> alias that, you just, you know, put an alias in your uh, in your RC. And then you just, I just write cake and then it's in my clipboard, which is way easier than opening up the emoji thing and trying to do that. So I do have an app called Code Points. Uh which almost does that. Um, it's uh, you don't want to check it out. Um, it's it's pretty nice. You like hit a hotkey and then you like type in this text search field, um, and then when you hit enter, it copies it into your, um, Ooh. your clipboard. Oh, is it? Wait, is it an app or is it a website? Yeah, it's an app. It's, I'm on a website called Code Points. That, oh, that looks equally awesome. Codepoints.net is that the one? Yeah. Oh man, fine. Oof, this is a uh... find all kinds of cool stuff. So if I could pop the stack like five levels, we dive, we dove into the whole Unix philosophy thing uh, and S expressions and M expressions because I was saying how Twisted wanted to have a nice, easy to use process spawning API. That's where we dove, started and in, into uh, so, all this. So speaking of process spawning, Docker yeah. Docker's a thing. <laughs> Docker is a thing. You can totally spawn processes in, in Docker. It's, ba- it's um, basically what it does. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, so if I could finish, I'm going to finish that one thought. <laughs> oh, I thought you were just... trying to bridge into it. Sorry. Uh, well, no, no. So the, the the I think bridging into that is a good idea because there's some stuff I want to do with this in Docker. But what I was trying to say was, we built this cool primitive spawn process, which is totally async, bidirectional subprocess communication with every bell and whistle and different things you can do in Unix. And then everybody just kind of started using that. And every attempt we've made to make like the nice high level thing that we thought would be the only thing people would want to use on top of it has not really gone well because it turns out like processes on Unix are complicated, nasty beasts that can do way too many different kinds of things. Um, you know, you got exit codes and status codes and signals. And, Sign- uh, yeah, signals are crazy and, from a, an API perspective. Yeah, there's just no way to present a sane. I've been wanting API. to write subprocesses for humans for like four years, five years, mm-hmm. and I I did an early early attempt at the, a real basic one called Envoy, and people like it. Uh, it just you know run this string basically, and then you get back you know a little object kind of like the request response object where there's stat- exit code and stuff like that, uh, and and the standard out and standard in. And then, but you can pipe things in the string too, and it'll it'll do the piping automatically. Um, but that's not a proper API for some process. You need like an actual, um, you know, you need some like real, real uh, piping abilities and like some real routing and and stuff like that. So I and I, but the thing, my end goal is I, I really want. Uh, do you know P expect? Yep. Yeah, I, I want that in on top of the subprocess module, which uh, appears to be impossible. Uh, it, it, there is an expect, a pexpect is not built on subprocess. It's built on the predecessor to it. I can't remember what it's called. Um, P-open? Yeah, P-open. Um, and it's because of the buffering that's in Python. And you can try dis- disabling the buffering. The other thing I've tried is uh, going to the file descriptors themselves and opening them directly. And uh, that should, should in theory work, but I haven't, been able to get it to because it basically the problem is 
every single programming language on earth, when you print a line or echo or puts a line, it flushes after it does that. Python does not. <laughs> and that's sort the problem. It, it's, it's complicated. So right? if it's, you, so you, I can get it to work with anything that isn't written in Python. Huh. We should, we should do a deep dive on some processes at some other point. Cause we'd, be in here for two more hours if we if I started explaining all of that stuff because I would love um, to get this to work because I, I think expect is an important functionality yeah yeah absolutely and, and twisted does have um, I, all of the primitives you would need to build that are already exposed um, and so hmm. I, I would love to sit down with you and just try to build what you're envisioning maybe on top of small process yeah because um, um, and then you could break it out into a separate module. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can just start with it as a separate module. Um, uh, I think there's there's uh, there's enough stuff in Twisted already. That'd be good. Uh, in I, fact, I haven't written anything in a while, so don't, I don't want to get too rusty. Cool. Um, so, so speaking of not, it's a um, date. I'm writing it down. <laughs> Glyph. Speaking of not having written anything, though, a great way to not write things is to spend all of your day trying to configure Docker to uh, run your stuff that you haven't written yet. Um, just. To, so my experience oh, with Docker is just there. real basic stuff. We have uh, beta support for it at Heroku mm-hmm. um, for real uh, as a registry and a runtime. And uh, I used to hate it when, when I did some early experiments with it because we did some earlier um, support. Uh, but with Docker to Docker for Mac being available, just that that cleaned up the experience so much for me. Um, just because I'm a big usability person, so like just. Just you know, it just works now for me locally. Um, being able to just kind of toy around with it a little bit, I'm like, this is pretty cool. I haven't done anything in production, you know. I mean, I can ship an app to Heroku and it's in production like normal, but um, I haven't. To me, that's not different than what I normally do. So I'm pretty like I'm excited about it because it gives me as a Heroku c- customer, you know, because I am a customer as well as a someone who works there, the uh, ability to use like any, any C uh, library that I need easily. Uh, it's a lot before you have to like vendor things and bind them up and put them into a build pack and it's, it's a pain in the ass. But with this, you know, you, you can just use like Alpine and you have a package manager and you install things and that's, that's really great, you know? So I'm excited about it in that fashion for like simple web deployments, but if you were doing something serious to, and deploying it yourself to your own infrastructure, I can see it being quite a, um, I wouldn't say a clusterfuck, but just like, you know, there's, there's no, I don't think there are any best practices that have emerged yet. Right. Well, I, th- I think there are, there are a lot. The, the container ecosystem is a complicated place. I wouldn't say there are no best. Well, maybe there are no best practices in the sense that there's no kind of universally acknowledged way to do things. Yeah. There are a lot of tools which wrap Docker and do various things for you. I mean, there's Mesosphere and there's Kubernetes and there's uh, um, then there's Docker's own swarm uh, to orchestrate things together. There's various plugins for things like Ansible and Puppet Chef to do different levels of things with Docker. But of course, um, one of the questions with Docker is like, how much do you want to do? Right, like, do you want to basically provision all your hosts with something like uh, Ansible, and then yeah. once you provision your hosts, then you want to like run some stuff in containers? Well, that's like a substrate want... infrastructure problem, which is separate from the Docker problem. Docker itself is just like the runtime. 
Right. Yeah. You need and, you need and, something. You have, if if you want to do that, then you need something to hold the runtime, and then you need something to support that, and you need the infrastructure to support that. <laughs> well, I but I think that that's actually a slightly controversial position. I think that's certainly how Docker would like you to think of it. I think oh. that it's the right way to think of it. It's the way I think of it. But there are a lot of people who are like, no, no, Docker is a great way to package up some of my applications, but I also want other things just running on the host, on the host OS next to it. I can see that. Um, which, so you know, it's just treating it kind of like a, a, a Unix packaging tool. Right. Well, or, or like almost like virtual end, right? It's like you have some stuff installed and some stuff is in virtual ends and like it kind of depends and there's like all kinds of things that can influence your choice. Um, so since you, you've talked about where you work um, and I'm doing this during work, so I should be brand engaged. Uh, <laughs> we have a, and like this is actually, is, um, uh, I love shilling for this because it's, a, it's something that I use. I like that. Yeah, I I, uh, I use this thing called Karina, which is getkarina.com. Uh, I host all of my own infra on it, um, and uh, they I don't think I think they still haven't figured out the pricing model yet, so it's still totally free, huh. um, which is a pretty good price for developers. Um, but what it lets you do is it kind of forces you into that worldview, because what you do with Karina is you create a cluster, and then there is no host, like you can't access the hypervisor. All you can do is run Docker images. Like you can run it, you can make a container, and that's it. And it's a swarm, so you've got multiple nodes, and you can run stuff and schedule them to different nodes. And okay. how they coordinate so and it's, it's and a stuff. little bit like the Heroku approach, ish. Ish, yeah. yeah. It's it's kind of. I mean, Heroku is obviously coming. Like Karina is coming up from the infrastructure. I feel like Heroku is coming down in the other direction because you have Docker support now. down from heaven. Um, <laughs> yeah, the fall from the. And, from, if for anyone listening, Karina starts with a C, not a K. I, um, I I had to Google around a bit. It's a very pretty website. Yeah, I really like the floating cubes. Very peaceful. <laughs> it's meditative. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that I find is still kind of a problem with the whole container ecosystem is that there's the promise, and even even that graphic, right? That graphic just calls out to you. It's like these are Legos, but we can't put the little dots on it because that would be a trademark violation, right? Like that's, that's what that image says. These are Legos. You can just cl- click them together and everything will work. I like Except, how it looks like they're going to fit in the hole, but they're actually, they don't fit at all. I think it's also very representative. Yeah. That, that <laughs> might be a little unintentionally like, uh, an indictment of the Docker ecosystem right now. So like, I, should, I should say I have these issues because I, uh, I use, uh, I use Karina to run all of my personal infra because it doesn't I, – I can skip host management because it's bare metal. So it's super fast. Um, I actually like – w- I've been a super, super early adopter of this product. And Do you have the uh, noisy neighbor problem? Are you like on a, a physical host with like 800 other Docker containers or do you have your own? I don't know exactly what the density is but um, – So it's, it's shared though. It's, I, I'm pretty sure it is shared, okay. uh, but I have never noticed a noisy neighbor. And like I wow. do a lot of very CPU and IO intensive stuff, and I'm pretty sure I would. That's because you're the noisy neighbor. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, in my um, apartment building, yeah, the, I don't have the any The IOPs problem. are coming from inside the house. In my, in my apartment, I have no problem with noise, but everyone else does. So. <laughs> um, so in, in, but the, the – the not fitting in the in the slots is uh, I say is emblematic because I recently actually wrote this post about 
the lack of a type system in Docker is my biggest problem because I want to use these off-the-shelf containers, right? Like I want to use Elasticsearch and I want to use Postgres and I just want to run them and have them live on my infra. Uh, and I can do that and I can write compose files that glue them all together. But if I screw it up, if I have a web app that needs a configuration variable that tells it where, um, if I have a configuration variable that tells the uh, infrastructure where the Postgres server is located, there's no way for me to provide type information for that uh, variable. There's, uh, I can't say I need a Postgres and the Postgres needs to be at this host, at this port, um, which also means that, you know, for to integrate like Karina with our other cloud products, like you pretty much just need to hard code all your IPs or have some DNS or something. Um, to hook things together because you can't say, I'm going to use this uh, cloud database over here. Um, and then I'm going to, uh, I'm going to use a cloud database over here and I'm going to use a, a Docker container over there. And they need to talk to each other and don't run the Docker container unless the cloud database is already provisioned. Um, and uh, similarly, you know, this, this is a problem for injecting any other kind of configuration information, which is maybe derived from the way that you're, um, that your cluster is set up. So like clustering um, Cassandra is famously difficult using Docker. Like you can do it, but you need an external configuration management tool to kind of run everything and then figure out what all the IPs are and then rewrite all the config files to have all of the IPs in them after you've started them up. Yeah, this, is, like, you, this is not a silver bullet, basically. This is something that's a piece of infrastructure, a tool in your programming stack that you're going to have to utilize as a tool. Right. Well, I mean, so are you talking about the Karina or Compose or like which? Well, like the, the fact that you need to, you know, some things require advanced levels of orchestration. Oh, yeah. So Docker itself kind of, um, as it's it's been growing, it's like growing more and more orchestration capabilities. Um, but uh, the way that I put it in my post is like there's still so many people that just treat Docker, particularly containers, as just tiny VMs. And they're more like program components, right? I, in the post, I say a function call, but another way to put it would be like an object, right? Like if you have an object in your program, even in Python, you got no type system or anything, but you can kind of, there's various ways you can say in your doc strings or, you know, with the adders library with validators, you can say like, I, this needs to be an object of type foo. And if you don't have an object of type foo for me, don't construct me. I can't do anything. And containers are the same way. You need to be able to talk to a thing that looks like the Twilio API. You need to be able to talk to a thing that looks like Elasticsearch. You need to be able to talk to a thing that looks like Postgres. And your your container is either going to do that by hard coding a host name and expecting the service discovery to be via DNS, or it's going to do it by saying, "I won't run unless you have a config config var for me in this like environment variable," and it has to be formatted a certain way and it has to contain certain information. Uh, and right now, every Docker container, like every image that ships, ships with Baroque instructions at the beginning that are like, okay, in order to run this container, you're going to need to follow these five steps. And if you're going to do it with this orchestration tool, you need to do it this way. And if you're going to do it that orchestration tool, you do it that way. And it's a lot like reading, um, like if you go read the Apollo 11 source code, like a giant assembler code base that had to be super reliable. Every function has like 150 lines of comments before it. 
And it's not just that they needed to be like super belt and suspenders reliable. It's that they didn't have basic tools. Like they have to say, okay, the the stack is going to have like six frames on it when you enter. <laughs> frames are all machine words. And the first machine word is a little endian integer. And the little endian integer represents the length of the value pointed to by the second parameter, which – and I'm like – they go through this huge ceremony of rederiving the idea of passing parameters in every single procedure that they define. Well, because, it was so early, right? That's just what you did. You were like, "Well, I, I heard I it to know? from someone that the, the modern practice for um, life critical <clears throat> life critical." I just drank some soda. Sorry, one <laughs> moment. Mm. Life critical code is. Um, well, you never you never use loops apparently, um, and they you write a spec effectively where it's like all in text form exactly everything that's going to happen, and then you have mm-hmm. two or three teams of people independently implement it, uh, and then they kind of compare afterwards. And ideally, they should all be identical. Like that's how that's how they get that level of reliability. Uh, well, and and that's like. Uh... That's still a good practice if you're writing life-critical code, safety-critical systems. But it is a lot easier to do even that if you have, like, let's say, even a C-level type system. Where you can just be like, int, int, char, star. Okay, we've got that out of the way, right? Like, we can, we can agree that's an integer, that's an integer, that's a pointer. The compiler tells us how many bits wide they are. And now we can, like... And so when you, like... In the Apollo 11 code base, one of the, that was more or less the same procedure they were following at the time. It was like, um, I, uh, you know, the, the way they would have phrased it probably wouldn't have been no loops. I think it had to do with something with uh, forward branches only or something like that. Oh, but, really? Um, uh, they, uh, so you, they would do the they would do the work, and then one of the big differences they would constantly be fighting with the different teams is they would have more or less the same algorithm but they would be extracting the parameters off the stack slightly differently mm. because they because reading your inputs was this creative endeavor that in order to you know like you you there were a couple different idioms and they were sort of competing and so like they eventually like in different parts of the out, you know the, the code for this module is written by someone else than this module yeah yeah and and you had sometimes you had to extract parameters from but that's fine that it's just like a giant you know, multifaceted open source project type of thing where it's all written by different people mm-hmm. and it works in a different uh, way. But as long as it follows the API, which is, you know, talk to the hardware and don't kill the people, <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's all right. Right. But is the return value, uh, you know, of don't kill the people a long integer of two machine words? Who can say, right? Like it was, you had to read the comments and figure it out. And so like, I think the the idea of just having like, a return type and input parameter types and like data structures with field types is like a pretty basic thing that most programming languages have in some capacity. And but not Python. Well, so Python doesn't enforce it at the level of like pre-declaring all of those things. But you can have but if them. You, well, if you say def add a b return a plus b there's a there's type information encoded in that, right? Like yeah. A has to be something that supports under add, and it has to take whatever type B is. Uh, and so that's and that's the most basic, like you really have no idea what's going on kind of method, right? If you have A 
dot do foo action open paren b. Now you have something to grep for. You know what a is. If you look at the implementations of do foo action, you can pretty quickly figure out what b is. And this is exactly how like uh, PyPy works, right? It figures out at runtime. It derives that type information. So it's not quite as formal as something like Java, but you still have this uh, general notion. There's still types available at runtime. And if you tell another Python programmer, oh, the third parameter is an int, like that's all you need to say. You don't need to like describe how it's laid out on the stack or what the offset is. Like, no, third parameter. We know it's named C because the params are A, B, C, right? Like, the, so, um, and so, and that's a effectively quote unquote typeless programming language, right? The only worse one I think is JavaScript, where it just doesn't even care if the parameters exist or not, which I still think is like super. Well, and their types are are just kind of weird. Yeah, yeah, but even <laughs> in JavaScript, even in JavaScript, you can or look it, for the methods. Especially mechanisms. numbers. Numbers are just like I, I don't even understand. Oh man, let me just get let me okay. I'll, I'll <laughs> Let me get a message out there to all of the I JavaScript users. I don't understand math in, in, in JavaScript. People make fun of JavaScript for not having integers. And if you're a JavaScript programmer, you're like, I added three and four together today and I got seven. I don't know what you're talking about. Integers are great. Here's the problem. That's great. That it's should, great for the front end, maybe. You know, for, hmm? I'll go ahead. Uh, well, see, the problem you need to be aware of is you only have 53 bits. You got a database. It's got a 64-bit counter in it. You're creating new rows all the time. As soon as you have more than 4 billion of something, you're promoting up into that 64-bit space. Especially if it's like 64 bits of entropy or something, JavaScript only has 53 bits because they're floating point numbers of integer precision. As soon as you have a number bigger than 53 bits, the point will shift and you will get numerical inaccuracy at the ones column. Wait, so they're, they, they're all floats. There's no ints at all. No, there's no ints at all. Oh, that explains a lot. Yeah. So, yeah, really so they don't have large, large, and I don't, I don't know what those are called. The ones that end with an L. Uh, big ints. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, no. I, well, they don't end with an L anymore. Python kind of unified its int type, and it's just yeah. like, okay, we got integers. Well, they, like, they do in my world. <laughs> oh man, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so so oh, we should talk about that. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. No Python podcast is complete without... Oh, can we keep it to five minutes? Is that possible? Sure. Yeah, let's set time. All right. I love Python 2.7. I think it's amazing. I've accepted the three as the future. I'm going to use it when everyone else is using it. Your turn. That's more or less where I am. Um, I think I might even be a quote-unquote early adopter um, when PyPy 3.5 comes out. Thank you so much to Mozilla for funding the PyPy development of 3.5. But 3.4 um, is out. What, why would the 3.5 be so much better? Uh, no, it's they, they have kind of a halfway ported version of 3.3 uh, right now, actually. Oh, is that what it is? Um, yeah, and if because if they had 3.4, Twisted would be able to use yield from on PyPy, and uh, they don't have that yet. But um, uh, And all you slackers who didn't donate towards Py3k and PyPy, you should totally go to their website and donate anyway to help them get it done faster. To, but, to what website? Uh, PyPy.org. It's like right there on the front page. You can just click on donate towards Py3k and PyPy. Um, I, I think Microsoft or someone just donated like $200,000. Oh, yeah, that was Mozilla. Mo- Mozilla. Mozilla. Was, um, and that's why I was saying thank you to Mozilla uh, just a moment ago was because they uh, – effectively that should be enough money to get it done. As I understand it, they're uh, – they. I don't think they have a date they're willing to commit to or anything yet. Yeah, that's important are. for the future of Python because before the the consensus had kind of heard, which was mostly from Alex, 
uh, who is an, an opinionated man. Uh, he's, he's, his, he's his own consensus. <laughs> <laughs> this is why he's contained in that bunker at the moment. Um, it was basically that Pi Pi is going to stick with two. And so if Pi Pi has become the Python of the future, then potentially two could also be the Python of the future. Which sounded great to me. I mean, I love two. I, I, I really don't like the changes to the, the basic types in three at all. But uh, I've accepted them. Bina, but I work, you, you do too. You, you know, you work with, uh, with um, wires a lot. And uh, so treating bytes as text, in my opinion, is, is a really easy thing to do in two. And in three, it's like pulling teeth, basically. You know, I have super mixed feelings about it. Basically, like one of the reasons given by Python Core for the reason that the upgrade had to be this discontinuous jump, why we had to have this big, like, painful upgrade. Like, I'd rather because... they just got rid of implicit uh, encoding, you know, just to raise an error, and that would be perfect. Amen, brother. <laughs> Uh, like, because that, and, and actually, so this is one of the, my big criticisms is, uh, this is why we still need a 2.8, right? So like, because the problem is it, the right way to kind of move forward to 3.0 or 3.0, 3. you know, four plus, i.e. the real Python three, um, 3.7. The, the way to, the way to move forward to, uh, to Python three is first find all the places you're doing implicit encoding and fix them. And then when you're done with that, then you can start really picking the correct types and like, you know, uh, but there are so many and, places. And find places. Well, I guess it is implicit encoding, but find places where it, it was actually acceptable into to uh, have something that returned strings sometime and returned uh, Unicode sometimes. Well, it, yeah. And, and we've, we've. And that's not, you can't do that anymore. And it's a better API. That's fine. Well, you can do it, and in fact, we do have code that does that. It's just that you have to be more disciplined about it. So, for example, well, now uh, in you need like to like like for me, it was in, in requests. There was just dot content, and if if I could do the encoding, uh, I would give you Unicode back, and if not, I would give you bytes. Uh, and that's not you know everyone loved it. No one complained. That was fine. But when I went to go to do three, I, I made them two different properties, and I think that's a better design. So yeah, at that level, I do think that's a better design, um, and because uh, they really are different things, right? Like some requests are fundamentally not text. It's not like you don't know the encoding, right? If it's a, if it's a JPEG, you shouldn't. There is no encoding. Yeah, well, it would have done bytes every time. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah, but yeah. The, but the idea was it was so interchangeable at the Python level that it, that they were kind of, you know, they were just interchangeable. And, yeah, and, and in some ways that was good, right? Like, so being able to write a function that can operate on bytes or string or or text is great, right? There are lots of places where that duality makes perfect but sense. But now you have to write twice as much code to accomplish it. We've got it down to maybe 1.25 times as much code on Twisted oh. right now. We have a couple of compatibility wrappers. We have some utility functions. And we've we've got this a couple of idioms now for dealing with this very common type of function, which I imagine you must have a couple of these in requests as well. Um, I honestly like. I only have a superficial understanding of the requests API, so I'm probably That's missing cool. some of the nuance. But um, but like, it took me about a month to, to 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 add three support, and it was the worst month of my life. Yeah, well, we we're uh, we're into year seven yeah. of Python three support for Twisted. So <laughs> um, I was manic, so you know, I got I got that superpower going on. <laughs> um, I think your code so base th- is probably slightly larger than mine. 
Hmm? I think your code base is slightly larger than mine. A little bit. Little. Little. <laughs> uh, so w when you uh, when you do certain things, though, like l the standard library example is lister, right? If you call lister with bytes, you want to get bytes back. If you call it with a string, like or call it with text, you want to get text back. There are lots of APIs like that in Twisted. There's file path, which is yeah. like that. And that well, required a lot of like, like, like file names and paths are not Unicode. Just not. I can. I mean, they can. We can approach that and pretend they are, but like they're not. <laughs> it's actually. It's. Oh my goodness. It's worse than that. It's worse than you're. You're even imagining. They are on some platforms. Yeah, they are on Windows and on Mac. Yeah. They are. They are not bytes on the Mac. The operating system interface gives you bytes. Oh. But it will uh, NFD normalize them. But HF, HFS makes them Unicode. Yeah. UTF sixteen um, or something. Uh, yeah, it's, well, it's, it's the sort of half UCS2, half UTF-16 thing that everybody... Dude, I am struggling with that right now. The, um, what's it called? There's two, two modes to build Python. Mm -hmm. I just learned about this recently for, for the, the, the Unicode types. Uh, Wide and narrow? Uh, effectively, yeah. It's like, I can't remember the acronym. Is it UTS? UTS-2 and 4 or something? U UCS. U yeah, UCS-2 UCS and 4. Uh, and so all the package managers for Unix do um, four, and uh, I've been building it this whole time too. And two is great; two works fine. Uh, and yeah, you, and four is just UTF sixteen. Uh, uh, other way around, y y four is UTF thirty-two. I don't think so. F four is four bytes per code point. Which means that it's 32 bits per code point. Oh, wait, you're right, you're right, you're right. Yeah, the first one is not quite 16, and the second one is 32. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the problem, uh, is that because the first one is not quite 16, uh, it can't represent everything. So the idea is, uh, in the next version of Python on Heroku, I, uh, I switched to, um, to, you know, the big one. and uh, But then you have wheels. And... <laughs> and, and wheels are in or do do you though do you anymore <laughs> exactly exactly well th th that's the default for most unixes so it should be okay so if people publish wheels they should be built with 16 most of the time but they they're not it, a best practice is to publish for both and no one's going to do that and pip will automatically select if they're both available uh but that's my main concern is is wheel availability on either one effectively and it's just it just my brain is like, why don't we have, I don't know, why even make it an option? <laughs> well, so the, the reason that it's an option has to do with the with data interchange with lower level platforms, right? Like on Unix, on like Linux on, in the cloud, you don't care because like nothing, everything low level has its own different idea of Unicode. So you're constantly transcoding across that boundary anyway. Yeah. But on the Mac, like the platform really expects, you know, wide characters to be 16-bit wide, same on uh, Windows. Um, why would you ever but, have uh, two? Like, Why would you ever use this like not like not complete subset of Unicode available? Well, I, so I think it's, it's for historical reasons, but I think it's like probably time to remove it. The, yeah, I think that it's... Well, so the problem is, of course, uh, you could tell everybody to recompile their Python wheels and you might get away with that, but you're not going to tell everybody to recompile every Mac app that has ever existed. So Yeah, um, yeah. And, and also, the... The way that most platforms implement UCS2 is fine. Like, it will 
you can encode uh, Almost. all of Unicode. Uh, no, all of it. 100%. You can't uh, on my platform for some reason. Uh, you can. The, what you're seeing, though, when you see encoding problems is this notion of a what's called a split surrogate. When uh, So at UTF-8, right? Let's start at the bottom. With a UTF-8 encoding, you know that you can't fit every character into one byte, right? So you have this escape byte that prefixes uh, so can, a bunch of other... So you can double it. Yeah, uh, and, or triple it, actually. There, there are, yeah. I believe, two, three, and four octet code sequences in UTF-8. It's a variable width encoding. But we want fixed width in, uh, in Python. The problem is you can't really get that. Um, <laughs> so, and, and this is actually like a sort of fundamental misunderstanding at every level of the stack, all the way from operating systems up to uh, language developers, up to application developers. Nobody gets that you, you can't address individual characters in Unicode. It doesn't make any sense. For example, for the most basic example, if you have E with an accent on it, right, is that one character or two? I mean, I don't know how the Unicode implementation works, but uh, I would like to think it's one. Okay, so what if it has an accent on top and a city on the bottom? I mean, it really depends. I I don't know how it's implemented. (laughs) I've seen some, based on some of the fancy tricks I've seen... I'd like to so like there's a word for these. They're like they're like ligatures. So ligatures are when you have two characters. Yeah, yeah, but they're like they're one. like. Uh, what, what am I trying to say? Combining characters. They're combining characters. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So the thing about combining characters is, for some of them, like e with an uh, accent aigu on it, like that is a. There is a version of that which is like Latin small letter e. Uh, combining accent egu. Like you can put those two code points next to each other and it'll visually be represented as an E with an accent. Or you could normalize it. The way you type it on a Mac. Right. Um, Or you could normalize it and then uh, into um, NFC, which is the uh, composed normalization, and that will turn into a single code point. Okay. But there are lots and lots of characters. And so like a lot of English... So all those Unicode hacks you see are... are, are um, exploiting the uncomposed version of Unicode representation. Right. And and for certainly the one, you know, Zalgo text with like 17 accents stacked in a giant vertical <laughs> yeah. stack, there's no one character version of that. Oh, of course. Like, um, and but then the there's problem. also like uh, hor- uh, what you, horizontal uh, vertical spaces, someone told me recently. Oh, man, I need to check that one out. <laughs> I, I, I occasionally... Horizontal uh, M spaces. <laughs> Every couple of months, I find another form of white space that Twitter hasn't figured out as white space yet. <laughs> and I make a new tweet that's like a blank tweet, which you're not supposed to be able to do. So you, you got to uh, stick that into your uh, Twitter bio. Yeah. Um, they don't allow... So I, I want to do cake, uh, star, cake, star, sparkles, cake, sparkles in my uh, bio, and it, does, it only lets me do the sparkles. It doesn't let me do the cake. And who can even know why that is? That's that's another weird one because they're both in the same Unicode plane. I thought. Uh, I think there's multiple um, spots where the cake lands, maybe, because because when it's in my M tool, it work, It seems to work sometimes. It doesn't work sometimes, and when I do it from the Apple keyboard, it almost always works. Really- huh, that's interesting. It might just be because uh, they're from a different encoding. So we should. Uh, I, I'm but mine are from JSON, JSON, so we should just. 
It was Unicode. It should just it's, it should be ideal and always work, right? Yep, it should be. This is why I don't like uh, Python three. <laughs> so like, but let let me tell you about split surrogates because this is actually like a this is the really important thing to understand because a lot of people sort of see this thing that sometimes certain like it used to be that people used to call like everything's a Unicode character. Any character you see on your computer screen is in Unicode. But of course, people used to call things Unicode characters if they were like unic characters that I don't see a lot, right? Like. Yeah, yeah. If you saw a weird, funky thing, it's like, oh, well, that's Unicode. Right, and now we've got this sort of like unnamed category of stuff that doesn't work sometimes. That, but like mostly Unicode works, and then this other junk breaks. And the reason it breaks is programmers do stuff where they're like, I've got a eighty character wide terminal, and I want to split lines. Like, I want to wrap stuff at eighty characters. <laughs> so, kind of so I'm going to count characters. I'm going to assume they're all like one uh, width character cell wide, which even at the very basic level, there are individual characters in uh, Chinese, Japanese, and Korean text which are two cells wide. Yeah, <laughs> so it, you just the emoji in um, at least on the Mac are are uh, to display properly. You need to put a space between each one in the terminal. Right, because things don't properly handle full width characters. So, um, but what's going on with and so what's going on with split surrogates is in UCS two. The Unicode Coding System 2, a code unit, is two bytes wide and is also a code point. You cannot put all of Unicode into UCS2. If you try, it'll just break uh, because there's characters that are larger than 65535. However, what the Mac and what Windows actually implement is UTF-16, which just like UTF-8, they're like, okay, not all the bytes fit. So we have a 16-bit character, and then there's an expansion, there's an extension character, which is like this is an escape. The next code point is should combine with this one, and those are called surrogate pairs because you can fit all of Unicode into 32 bits. So they have an escape character, and then like you, the next character combine, and you can represent any character in all of Unicode. The problem is if you have a dumb word wrapping algorithm or some other nonsense going on, it's like one, two, three, four. Okay, I want four characters. I'm going to split it in half. When you split that surrogate pair in half, you get nonsense followed by nonsense, um, which is actually yeah. invalid. And if you try to because you're truncated it at the wrong spot, right? Um, and or or if like you insert a space, right? Like or or any other kind of formatting, you, you can't necessarily do that at that point. So. The idea that you can have this data structure that Python wants to give you, which is like a thing where you access a fixed offset and you get a character, cannot exist with Unicode. Unicode doesn't work like that. What they should, what we should have, is a much richer API. See, that's what which, worked really well in two. Was that like it was like this lying API that was like, <laughs> it was like, give me this byte offset, and it just worked. Right, and it would turn into like. For real garbage, like you would really break because it would break UTF-8, UTF-16, anything. It wasn't like this weird quarter case of certain characters. It was like any non-ASCII would immediately, you know, start throwing errors. But which, in a way, is kind of better for, uh, for bytes. Like if you had, yeah, you know, ASCII in bytes, then you know you could just do whatever you want and it worked. Now in Python, if you have a byte string and you give it an index, you just get back an integer. And I'm like, well, that's really useful, guys. Thanks. Yeah, that, that one I think they've admitted was probably one of the dumber changes that, that just didn't make any sense. That's the one I can't get past. Um, I know it was a mistake, but I mean, it's a big one. <laughs> it, 
And that, and this is my, my contention is that the way they really should have done the port originally is really just have a 2.8, get rid of, like remove, make implicit decoding deprecated in 2.7, yeah. gone in 2.8. And then the move to 3 would have been so much smoother. Like we could have just said, okay, everybody's Unicode clean now. And, and then many of the things which happened in 3, like why is there percent formatting? but no dot format on bytes, yeah. right? We ported all this code over because they kept telling us like, oh, format curly braces, it's the future. And we're like, oh, it's a little slower, but okay, it's a nicer syntax. And You're the only other correctly. person I've ever heard say that it's slower. Uh, it's, I know, it's, I measured it. It's like much slower. It's weird. <laughs> but, you know, so there's this like, okay, we did this big kind of painful migration that we started to this new thing. And then the new thing's gone. And we have to move the, everything back to the old way because they're not, for some reason, adding format to bytes, but they are adding percent formatting, which means if you want to write something that works with both, you have to use the old gross thing where you, if you do percent, open, paren, whatever, you can forget the S on the end and it's an error. Like all of those things, like there are a lot of inscrutable decisions and the, the whole Python 3 thing, which um, which are not me trying to hold back progress or trying to say like, oh, it's, you know... No, you're just uh, giving just constructive gonna... criticism, saying that it was poorly done. Yeah, and it was, and I, I, some of it is just sour grapes at this point because there's no way to go back and fix it. But uh, and like, I think we're stuck with the indexing it gives you an integer thing forever. Um, oh, they can fix that in in four, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I mean that really ruins Please. the language for me. I mean, if just because I mean, not as like a user, but like if I was a beginner. And then I saw that, I'd be like, what, what the hell's going on? You know? Yeah. Well, and, and there's other stuff. Like, why is sys.stdin a text stream? Like, that makes no sense. It's not a text stream. Even on Windows, it's not a Wait, text stream. Wait, are you saying like, it's Unicode? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's, and, like, it, it, and so there, there's a way to get at the byte stream. And which. Do you have to find the file descriptor and open it? No, no. <laughs> well, man, that would have been pretty terrible. No, it's you. Uh, you just access the dot buffer attribute. So they, they they clean this up in Python 3 a bit because in, in Python 2 it was like, what's this, sits, sits dot stood in? I don't know. Like, it's it, it probably has a read method, but whatever whatever else you get on there, it's a grab bag. It's a file-like Where, object. Just do whatever you want with it. Whereas on Python 3, it's like, oh, it's a text stream, except, of course, if I pipe a PNG as input because I'm writing a PNG crusher, like to my content pipeline, like, no, it's not a text stream. Don't try to do that. Why are you like, why are you interpreting it as UTF-8? That makes no sense. Um, That's interesting. I'm going to have to see what I do in my, uh, I have a Xerox project, which is straight up uh, trademark infringement. But it's, the idea is, it's one of my oldest projects. It's just a little, it has like two methods and it's just copy and paste. And it works on all platforms. Uh, and it uses, you know, it like pipes out to the different uh, tools. I'm curious to see what I do for Python 3. Because it supports uh, Unicode. It probably works fine. Let's see here. Where would that be? Darwin? Eh, whatever. Never mind. Anyhow, so I, I don't think we kept it to five minutes. <laughs> Um, but I think, it, like, honestly, there was a period, like, maybe in 2009, where I thought, that's it, you know, Python is over, 
we've got like uh, it was very depressing because I, I I kept seeing like all of these this conflict over the, the Python three transition, um, and it uh, it was it was an acrimonious time, and I, I wasn't sure that the community was going to weather the storm. Um, nowadays, I'm way way more optimistic about the future of the language and the ecosystem. I feel like uh, Python 3, like, uh, the, the, I feel like the storm has passed. Like, Python 3 came, it was really, you know, challenging and difficult. But there are nice things about it. Like, I I appreciate, for, for all that I don't think that the Unicode thing was handled with all the grace and aplomb that it should have been, Alt, fundamentally, like, you shouldn't be confusing those types. They are different. And the fact that this forces you to is... I feel like it's an improvement that could have been made less disruptively, but it is an improvement. And it, uh, we used to have to have guards on everything in Twisted that would like make sure you weren't passing Unicode to sockets because it would break stuff horribly if you did that. Um, you know, we, back when Unicode was introduced, like we didn't do that. And if you passed Unicode through to a socket, it would like use the buffer API and send like the four byte wide characters full of nulls. <laughs> So like, uh, and, and to make matters worse, of course, like you would have protocols that would send like a length prefix and then send a string and it would just be wrong because like get cut off in the middle. So there are far fewer places we have to do like be super careful like that because it will, the language will force you to understand what it is you're passing yeah. much earlier. Yeah, we've come a long way too. Like uh, when I started to port um, requests to Python 3 as support for Python 3, um, I apparently I was the first person to ever use like URL parse ever <laughs> or something. <laughs> Cause so I started using it, you know, cause I use it a lot and, uh, the, it, the documentation was just lying about how it performs. It's like, if you, if you pass in all, all bytes, you'll get back all bytes. And if you pass in all, uh, strings, you'll get back all strings. And that just wasn't true at all. <laughs> and, uh, and I ended up meeting the person who, uh, was responsible for maintaining that and if you, you know starting then and he was like oh yeah but that's like a huge bug where uh, it's, it's not filed anywhere or anything it's just like a people know you know he knows about it and like he's like it'll be fixed in the next version so three four was the first one that had like a usable url parse and like people don't even know because like that's how poorly the the migration was because you know the, the standard library is very large, and if you don't have a large user base, you don't catch these bugs, you know. Which is exactly why we needed the two point eight, right? Like we needed that thing to force the standard library to kind of get its own house in order. Like I don't know if you remember this, but you remember how like email was just missing until three point three or something? Oh really? <laughs> like they just removed it for like, or I, I don't even remember exactly how it was. Like maybe it just traced back to be tried to. Did, I, like, did they add it back? Uh, they did, yeah. It's it's there now. Oh, I thought um, that it was like going. I remember the um, uh, what is it called? Like the the mimes, mime types. Is that what you're talking about? No, no, I'm talking about like literally, uh, email, uh. like import email. Um, and uh, yeah, so like it's there now. But let's let's uh, go back a couple versions. Was it in? See, to me, the problem is. Is, it's 3.2. It, it was it was gone in 3.0 and 3.1. Um, 
and then they added it back in 3.2. And as I recall, it didn't work at all in 3.2. To me, the issue like, is that is that Unicode is this like ideal, right? It's like up in up in the platonic ideals. Like that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Representation of text, and you know, discs and like machines are not that. And so, like, we can't pretend that that's what everything is. So that shouldn't be like the primary. Uh, interface for everything or even if it is a primary interface the bytes interface should be as rich as it was in 2.7 in my opinion because you really need the flexibility to to break shit if you want and, you know do because 2.7 like i am great at unicode in 2.7 i'm fantastic at it i don't have any problems you know and like mm-hmm. i i want the flexibility to do that in three as well but i can't it doesn't let me well i mean so I haven't uh, – there are a couple things like the, the byte indexing is annoying. But honestly, like one of the things about that is I think probably the way to fix the whole indexing a string to get an individual character, the thing to do is just deprecate that completely. Like don't don't even fix it to go back to being a character. Like just – like why are you doing that? You don't need to do that. Doing what? Like addressing a character at a time. Like anytime you're doing that in Python, even in PyPy, that's too slow. Like don't try to touch <laughs> – each character. Oh, but if you do multiple, it just gives you multiple integers. No, if you do multiple, it gives you a, a byte slice. Oh, does it really? Is it, I thought it was a byte array. No, no, no. It, it will give you. You can slice bytes just like you used to. So, Are you in sure? fact, you can do. Uh, I'll, I'll pull up a Python three prompt. I wonder if they changed uh, it. I'm pretty sure that was there since the very beginning. Um, so yeah, if you do. If you do bytes A B C, uh, and then you slice it and then do zero. Oh, you're right. Nice. Okay, so it's only for a single one. I could have. Yeah, and, and you can even get a single one if you just do zero colon one, right? Like you slice out one, it will give you a slice of one. Okay, so it's not as bad. I, I could have sworn it's some. There's some way to get it to give you a byte array. Uh, I mean, if you call byte array, it'll. Uh, you can slice off bits of it as as a byte array, but. Um, ah, whatever. Okay, well, I feel slightly better. Yeah, that's that's my job. I go around make feel everybody feel slightly less bad about Python three. All right, um, and colon colon minus one works, so I'm happy. Yep. Yeah. So any and like kind of most of the time when you're doing slicing, that's actually what you want is a slice and not like an individual offset. Yeah. Um, and so and that's how kind of like I had a bunch of places in Twisted where we were doing individual bytes offsets and we sort of realized like nah this is mostly like we actually want the slice of like zero to four and not just like zero, one, two, three. Like we, we most of the places we had to fix that issue, it ended up not being a big deal. Um, we kind of were doing the wrong thing already. Uh, most of the places we had to fix like, you know, dot format, percent formatting, constructing structured groups of bytes using like format strings, that stuff was super annoying. Um, I mean, and we started porting when 3.0 came out. Um, uh, so that meant that we, we had to do stuff like building lists and like calling joint, you know, be quote, quote, join on them because that was the only way, like they didn't originally have percent formatting at all. Yeah, um, yeah. And, yeah, and actually, if I could say, that that is the main thing that has been discouraging and upsetting about Python 3. It's not the mistakes that the core devs made because honestly, like they were somewhat receptive to feedback. Um, once the process started going off the rails, they were like, oh, okay, maybe we didn't do this the best way. Um, they, uh, they also were not aggressive. They were like, 
very like this is going to take a really long time. We know it's going to take a long time. We're not going to force anybody into it. They're still, despite clearly wanting to move on, they're still supporting 2.7 and they keep extending its lifetime because they can see that's where the users are and they do care. The thing that killed me about the Python 3 transition was all of these aggressive, entitled whiners <laughs> show up and play. Like, and you know, because I have dedicated thousands of hours of my life to the Python 3 port of Twisted, right? And there are other folks on the Twisted team who've done even more than me. And we had sponsors who funded development. And to have people show up on Reddit or Hacker News or the comments on my blog, by the way, you might notice my blog no longer has comments, um, <laughs> and, to ju- and to say, like, not only do you have to, are you obligated to spend all of this time doing all of this work because you should already be on Python 3 and why are you, like, holding back? Oh, I hate that. And not not only do you have to do this work, not only am I entitled to it, but you have to be happy about it the whole time you're doing it. You cannot be critical in any way. You cannot offer any constructive feedback. You cannot suggest features for the future. Python 3 is here. It is now. So so I talk about this in a talk that I do uh, called Python 2 and Python 3, A Sacred Love Story. Uh, it's just, it's an awesome talk. Uh, but, but, uh, it's this weird trend that I've noticed cause I go to, I, I, I don't travel as much as I did, but I, I used to go to every Python conference basically. You know, I've, I've been to almost all of them and meetup groups. I've been to all the major ones and, you know, so I've spoken with, met, talked to, engaged with like thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Python developers. And I have a really good feel for like, where people are on a lot of issues like Python 2 and Python 3. Uh, and almost everyone is kind of on the same page as you and me that I meet. Uh, you know, there's like there's like maybe 3 4% that's like really pro 3. Um, but then you go on like, one of my things gets on like Hacker News, like the, the Hitchhiker's Guide to Python, which is available soon uh, from O'Reilly. Uh, it, all don- it all goes to charity. Um, and you know that guide recommends installing too at the moment because that's kind of like what people are using, um, and like that you know every like eight months that gets on Hacker News again, and so it did. Uh, you know, in, in what am I trying to say? It's been on Hacker News many times, and there's this trend I've seen, and it's this that that type of person coming on there, and they're just like. This sucks. Why doesn't it recommend Python three? You know, and they just do that over and over and over again. There's like forty of them, and they do it on on there, and they do it on Reddit. And I'm like, who are these people? Because <laughs> I've met everyone, and I've I've never met them before. And it's really, and they're so aggressive about it. And and then I've finally figured it out. And this is my theory. I mean, I'm not saying I'm correct, but I think what it is is they are new Python developers. Because when I was a new Python developer, I was like really engaged in social media and on those sites. And I was, as I started to um, establish myself in you know my coding skills and stuff, I had opinions. And I think that these are people who are like they started and they decided to do three, and then they they're on Hacker News, and then they're like really adamant about three. And that's my theory: is that that's like a different Python community than the one that you and I are a member of, if that makes sense. Uh, it sort of does. Um, 
And, you know, I, I... Three is not the only place I see this happening. Um, and I do think that it is, you know, early adopters and people new to the community who often end up being this kind of, like, aggressive, like... And in a way, it's defensive, right? Like, we say it's aggressive, but they're really, like... Trying to be helpful. Feeling threatened by, like, these, you know, things that they perceive to be... Antiquated like, people. Yeah, like... So I, 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 but I, I do think that, um, you know, we should all consider, I think, like the impact of your words when you're like on a comment site or you're like talking about someone else's work. Like I, I am not a hundred percent on board that like all work must be compensated. Free labor is slavery. Like I, I don't think that, uh, like I've certainly gotten a lot out of giving away twisted and like, you know, uh, I don't feel like I necessarily need to be compensated for every minute of my time spent helping someone for free in open source. I think there's, but you should, you want to feel appreciated or that it's valued. Exactly. I, I think, and the word that I would use really is respect, right? I feel like there is a lot, there's a complicated economic interplay between um, maintainers and users of open source. Uh, but I think the one thing that we can always afford to give each other is mutual respect, yeah. right? Like if we, maybe we can't always afford to pay for things. Maybe we, the economics of scale prevent really uh, participating in the way that we ought to, or the way that, you know, because maintainers certainly like have a certain level of security responsibility to update things for their users, but that's work and that costs money. And how do you compensate those people? Like that's a very complicated, um, tangled, uh, ball of wax. <laughs> what the pro, so when, I, we should think about that um, and we should try to figure out a better way around it. But like there is never a reason to be disrespectful, um, yeah, especially my mo- publicly. My motto on yeah. – uh, my I, I have a code of conduct kind of on my projects. Uh, and I, I'm actually not a fan of the idea of projects having code of conduct. I know that was a thing that was going around recently. I mean I think it's fine if a project wants to do that, but I would never do that to any of mine. Um, I, I think it's great for conferences, but definitely not for – a project like me. If I was Django, maybe, but I'm not Django. Uh, so anyway, my code of conduct is uh, be cordial or be on your way. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I say whenever anyone has a, you know, one of those tones or attitudes. Um, and it's been very effective. So and it's like, it's written down over here, you know, just be nice. <laughs> you know, mm. And that's all, that's really all, all you need. I also I really like this the the specificity of cordial because right? yeah. not like nice is really general and maybe you can mean a couple different things and then what if somebody isn't nice you should you be not not nice back but when it's cordial it's like okay even if you have something that maybe isn't nice to say you have to say it in a cordial way yeah to- <laughs> exactly present it pleasantly like there, there there's feedback is great negative feedback can also be great as long as it's constructive right now. You, mm-hmm. you don't want to be like spewing non-constructive feedback out and like taking out your work frustrations out on open source maintainers because the update isn't coming out until tomorrow or something. You know? <laughs> yeah. Speaking of which, update your iPhones, everybody. Oh, my goodness. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. I've been Secure, delaying yeah. that. Big exploit today. Um, oh, really? Kind of three game over zero days. Like, Is that 3-4? Three, three, uh, 9-3-5. Oh, I still didn't do 3-4. Came out three, like two four. hours ago. Uh, all right, I'll do that. Um, yeah, so I think... Uh, and your iPads. Yeah, and your iPads. And your uh, 
Uh, is it, is it an SSL pods. thing or? Uh, no, it was like a jailbreak, like memory buffer overflow. Uh, um, so like something that would happen in Safari. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, anyhow, uh, like I think secret root kits. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I, they found it by a guy reporting a phishing email where he was like, I think this is a rootkit. And the security researcher was like, it is. <laughs> I have two um, questions for you. All right. All right. What is your favorite cloud service? My favorite cloud? What, what do you mean by cloud service? Everything's a cloud service. Well, like, I, well I guess I'm thinking of two different things. One is like infrastructure and the other uh, is like, I don't know, personal utility maybe. Uh, so I gotta, I, I am sincerely going to advocate for my employer here. Karina, like, which I already mentioned is really my favorite thing. Cause it's almost a pass, but it's got all the flexibility of Docker. So you could like run whatever you want with more or less, no restrictions. It's free. It's bare metal. And like, um, but you also don't have to manage hosts. So like kind of the optimal situation from where I'm sitting. Um, but of course, if you try that, you should also compare it to Heroku's beta Docker support. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, partner synergy here. <laughs> so, not, not sure if we have any business relationship, but like, yeah, certainly. I, I have to say, like, we, we do have a, a great uh, corporate, some great corporate citizens. Um, you know, Rackspace compensating me for a bunch of my work on Twisted. Um, yeah, they, they pay HP. for the... Um, the request servers, uh, which is nice. Although, man, I won't go there. Very fr- <laughs> <laughs> There's uh, some yeah, services okay. that you use where it's not even worth it if it's free. But it's it's um, because of uh, I think it's because of a hacker though or something. Ooh. I don't know. I had like a two thousand dollar bandwidth bill. We should talk about that off for like um, four four months. Now they're well. We, I don't know where the band was coming from. so It didn't cost me any money. They're good about it, but it's like... I, just, I think my frustrations are just about having a server. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just like... Right, and that's that's why Karina's so great. I don't have a server. <laughs> um, but no, yeah, I, they, they host so many open source um, infrastructures. It's really great. Yeah, don't they do... They do uh, some of Read the Docs, too, I think. Is, they at least used to. That? I'm not sure if they do any more. Um, and they were doing uh, the cheese shop for a while. Well, we and yeah, we I think that uh, if you look at uh, pipi.org, yep, uh, Rackspace uh, provides the servers. So, like most of the bandwidth does not go to Rackspace. Like um, it mostly goes through uh, Fastly. Yeah, Fastly, which is you know who also is it, giving it out for free. So we get we're getting lots of support. It's really great. Uh, and, and also, just I got to give a shout out to Hewlett Packard Enterprise, who is a competitor, but is also uh, providing support for the Python community with uh, Donald Stuffed um, and Corey Benfield. Yep. Like Corey and Benfield's work. He's eighty percent responsible for the maintenance of requests at the moment. <laughs> right, and I, and I didn't even notice because he's he's maintaining requests and uh, basically the web server in Twisted. Right. So oh, really? Like, I didn't know about. Yeah, that. Yeah, he's he owns both ends of the pipe at this point. Um, and H two and and and. Yeah, well, see, the reason I say he made his web server twisted is he added HTTP2 support. Oh, of course. Um, so, yeah, so yeah, we're very lucky that our, our corporate citizens are pretty good, like, um, you know, to, to provide all these different things. Um, and, you know, I've got to say nice things about my employer, but there's a lot of other employers out there who are doing 
good stuff as well. Um, and so there, you had two questions. So like I, I, I answered that Karina is like my favorite cloud service thing, but uh, that's infrastructure oriented. What about like uh, right. personal oriented? Um, personal. I mean, I've run all of my personal infra on Karina. Like that's where. Well, I mean, like uh, I'm thinking like apps or something that are like cloud backed and stuff like that. Oh, that kind of stuff. Um, hmm. Like for me, I'd say my favorite cloud service infrastructure wise is probably S3. Uh, but more practically, the one that gets me most excited is DynamoDB. I think it's like the coolest thing in the world. Huh. Uh, but for personal so, stuff, like things like that, I, I absolutely love that. And it, they have a little oh. sick service. And like, it's just, that's how I, without it, I would not be employed, you know, like, I guess I wouldn't be able to manage my time. We should do a, a follow episode just on that because since you mentioned that, uh, OmniFocus. Oh, yeah. And so OmniFocus as a. You're as rolling in dough, just... man. No, <laughs> yeah. Things is expensive too. Uh, well, yeah, you know, things is the is the uh, is the Porsche, but but OmniFocus is the Rolls Royce, right? I don't know. I think OmniFocus <laughs> is more like the. Uh, I don't know what requires like the most maintenance. I guess the Rolls, uh, Rolls Royce is a pretty finicky. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I so I actually the the reason so I love OmniFocus because it it, it it provides all these great different services. It. Um, it works on iPhone. It works on the. Uh, I have I have the complication on my Apple Watch oh. that like tells me what I have to do during the day, which is great. It's much. It's it's even better than like um, something that tells you like what your next meeting is. It's like no no. What are your aspirations for the day? Yeah. Right? Like yeah. sure, you have to go to some meetings or whatever, but you'll get a notification. Like the main thing I want to see is like what do I want to try to do? Break down the boxes. Um. Break down. <laughs> um the other. <laughs> OmniFocus thing that is really great uh, that pertains specifically to your question of a cloud service is they had sort of a standard sync service and it was fine. Right? Like it would sync all of your um, shit, uh, all your stuff to the, their central server and it would keep a database there and then various clients would download it, uh, which is kind of what you expect from a modern day task tracker. But then out of nowhere as a free upgrade, one day, and 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 they did this without disrupting sync to older clients. Like they they set up the whole upgrade infrastructure so that is super smart. They added uh, provider independent security. Ooh. They were like, uh, yeah, we don't want you to trust us anymore with your data. Like we want you to. It's only on your devices, and we will store an encrypted blob, but. We will move the data between all of your devices intelligently and minimize bandwidth and everything. But like, is it is I, it like um, uh, manual authorization where like you have to authorize from another device when you activate it? Shared key, shared key. Okay, okay. So you just log in, like, and that's the thing. They didn't change the UI at all, right? You log in. They just stop sending the password to them, um, and so. It, they, and they, they did a you know, this seamless upgrade of all my data. And there's like there was like one dialogue. That's good. Like, I'm glad because oh. they were a company that like right before the iOS boom was kind of like, or right as it started was, they were kind of at the top of the, the pyramid, you know, where they like had some of the, they had the nice apps. Uh, yeah. And I, I'm glad they haven't fallen completely into ubiquity or into 
I don't know, the opposite of ubiquity. <laughs> no, I mean, they, they still make OmniGraffle, they still make Omni Outliner. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm like, to sure me, all these things sound like really old, like things that people don't use anymore. Well, Omni, so Omni Outliner has sort of, I think, fallen by the wayside just because originally OmniFocus was like a set of scripts that like drove Omni Outliner. Really? Um, and I do still use Omni Outliner sometimes, but like mostly OmniFocus is like, if I need an outline, it's probably because I have a list of things to do. Yeah. Okay, I'll just, you know. Um, so, uh, but OmniGraffle, like. That's cool stuff. Yeah, it's and it's and they just did a new version. Um, like, or they they have a beta out now of OmniGraph Seven, and like, yeah, I it's one of those apps that like if I didn't have it on my Mac, I don't know how I would communicate anything visual to anyone anymore. <laughs> like, I it's I it, bought the iPad version when it was like when the first iPad came out. I don't know if if I still have if it still works or anything. It was expensive though. It was like fifty or sixty bucks, or it might have even been a hundred. It was very expensive. It was a big purchase at the time. I wasn't. I didn't have much money, uh, yeah. and uh, I never used it for anything useful. Though I don't. I guess I don't need to do graphs. If I do, I'll just draw them on paper and then take a picture. Or no, I have so, the new iPad now with the pencil, so I'll I'll draw something. Actually, I guess once you've once you've spent, uh, you know, you've dropped a grand to have a pencil on a on a tablet, you maybe you're okay. But I, I would. I've been trying to get a pencil on that tablet for a little. I've. This is like my twentieth stylus, so I, I, I've earned it. Uh, well, so I have actually occasionally encouraged other folks who have expressed the same sentiment, like, "Oh, I bought OmniGraffle, but I just, I just never seem to, uh, you know, to find the time to use it." Force yourself to make a couple diagrams, like draw some internal diagrams of requests of architecture or something, like just. Yeah, spend I would enough use it time. for documentation, maybe, but I, I kind of like the hand-drawn aesthetic too you know like i did a blog post on the future of http and it i think mm -hmm. i drew it in like the paper app and like i don't know i just like the way that looks because it makes it more personal you know if, if it was for work it would be like omnigraffle or something but like for me i like to have a human touch mm -hmm. you and your obsession with humans oh it's, it's like it's like they're all around me or something Okay, and the other one is, wait, is that it? Oh, uh, what is your dream service? Like something that you wish existed, either infrastructure-wise or, or personal-wise. Oh, man, that's tough. I mean, it uh, doesn't have to be the ultimate one, but just you know, something that you wish uh, existed. Uh, I... So, uh, do you ever use WebNumber? No, I've never heard of that. Uh, WebNumber.com, no E. Uh, it does not work very well. I would not recommend it. Um, but the gist of it, even when it did kind of work, the way what, what you could do is you could basically get this bookmarklet and you'd click on a node in a DOM somewhere, and it would like make a metric that it would graph over time. Uh. Um. And something that I've really wanted for years would, was like something in, something that was as ubiquitous as like my to-do list. Like one of the reasons I love OmniFocus on every device. It's in like available you know, pervasively and it, it, it integrates really nicely with each environment. So it's constantly prompting me to do things uh, at the appropriate times. Um, 
I really want something I can just drop numbers into, just drop data into as like a personal thing so that I can have my own like bag of data that follows me around on the web. But it like um, updates. Well, like, uh, for example, like uh, one kind of trivial manifestation of this would be like, where did I park? Like, let me just drop a pin on a map and then like remember the location and the time and the... Um, oh, so you want, you you want know, like a label. health kit, but for everything. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um, and HealthKit also, like, they give you these very specific and not helpful reports. Like, there's, it's hard to get the data out to do, like, arbitrary correlations with it. Yeah. I want something that lets me make pivot tables out of my life, right? I want something where I can just, like, be on my phone. And, like, the most important metrics being the ones that could be inferred automatically. Like, I'm taking a walk. Here, I'm tapping. And, like... I'm tapping again to say, like, I'm done. And, of course, I can do the, that with Fitbit. But if I do that with Fitbit, they're mostly concerned about, like, heart rate and a bunch of other health metrics. But I'm like, where did I go? How often have I been in that place? How often have I tapped that button in that exact spot? Like, do I – how long – like, what was the distance that I walked? How often do I walk that distance? So you get some of this stuff out of Fitbit, but then I have other stuff like, what's my mood like, right? You know? Yeah. Just – little ping to rate it like once per day and then and then graph my mood versus what's my mood what's my activity level what's my mood what's my sleep like what's my sleep like so in a way you just kind of want like an app that is like you you can just create your own arbitrary metrics and it gives you the tools to integrate into that or like buttons to push or notifications and stuff like that yeah exactly just something that i can like kind of manage my own stream of data for the things that I think are important to me. Cause like, like uh, I'm stressed things, out, hit the button. <laughs> yeah. And then like, maybe you don't even have a number, right? Just hit the button and then make it a count of how many times during the day do I, am I like, am I so stressed out that I'm going to, or you could see if it like, phone. maybe it happens like at noon every day or something like that. Right. Or and after you eat it. a sandwich. Exactly. And so every metric would have like a time and a location and a device that was being used and just like capture all of that. And then give me a table that I can like. I feel like HealthKit is like close to that because it lets you. I mean, not as not from a UI perspective, but from a data model perspective, because uh, they you, know, you can just enter any data you want by hand, and it like has all these categories. You just like want that, but for any category, like you can t- make your own, basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and sometimes just even like make make one that's just like a GUID, right, that gets, like, a color randomly assigned or something that I later I'll figure out what it means, right? Like, oh, I just want to capture the data passively. I don't want to sit there and have to, like, type in you, carefully. Do, do you, you mean you just, like, want to randomly select a color? Right, just be, like, new metric, uh, 17. And then, like, <laughs> later I'll look at it and I'll be like, oh, yeah, right, I have a 17 and a 45 and it was the price of, uh, you know, 20 pounds of potatoes or whatever. Like, I... I, I uh, and that's another thing, right? Like, uh, one of the things I used to use WebNumber for was tracking price trends on Amazon. I would like add a little thing that would to a to a web page that would show the price of certain things. Like uh, like I have probably a pile of thirty hard drives in my house of varying sizes that are in a gigantic uh, ButterFS array, so that I have some place to dump backups and other bulk data. And so I really wanted to buy hard drives when their prices were in a trough. Yeah, they go they go uh, up and down a lot. Those floods. They do and. So yeah, so that's just another example of like I want metrics collected from the web. I want them, I want them collected from my phone's sensors. I want them collected from 
all of my computers and I don't want them to go in a giant bucket that's part of like a, a, a web service that's like ad supported because that's really like a dystopian hellscape in the making, right? I, I want a you, you, you pay five bucks a month or something. Yeah, and store all of my metrics forever. Because also, like, this, if you're talking about numbers that a user is, like, manually typing in individually for themselves, that's a tiny amount of data, right? That's never going to be no, yeah, it's not, big nothing. data, right? No, then only, um, you just have to deal with the mobile device connections, which would just, you know, increase your server costs. That's it. So, yeah, so I guess in closing... Um, yeah, you got to go. Right up against the end of time here. But uh, so that's maybe a thought we could leave the listeners with is someone build that for Glyph. Yeah, yeah, just to do what I say. And, uh, I and do message. it and twist it yeah. on Python 3. No, in Python 2. Python 3. Yeah, in Python 2.7. Until yeah. PyPy 3.5 comes out, at which point you can move everything over, and that's cool. Um, everybody should use PyPy production by default. Um, but yeah, I, the, specifically, the reason that I'm interested in that type of app is I really, really want all of these technologies that we keep reading about in the news all the time, big data, machine learning, um, predictive analytics, to serve individuals. Yeah. Right? They always serve people in some sense because there are comp- the companies that collect them are made of people, but they're serve- they serve people in these really mechanistic ways that just optimize these really simple metrics across large groups of people. Like, do we really as a civilization need most of our effort enga- involved in increasing YouTube engagement like that? Yeah, I'm good for YouTube. I'm sure I'm Mazel Tov, but like, <laughs> I, I hope uh, I, I really wish that we could not to take it away from the groups that are using it now, but to like empower individuals to take that kind of uh, data and and do something with it uh, that supports them individually, which is really hard. That would like, be a very you, hard thing to build, just so you know. Yeah, yeah, and that's why I haven't built it right. Unless it's, you made it easy. completely for nerds, then it would be super easy. Uh, well, even for nerds, like, have you ever talked to somebody who's trying to operate a Hadoop cluster? Like, <laughs> it's, it's not fun. Um, so, uh, yeah, all right. So on that note, yes, uh, th- thank great. you for joining us, Cliff, uh, as a co- uh, co-host. Hopefully Alex will escape his uh, inevitable containment uh, soon. And, yeah. yeah, any last words? I think we've just about covered it. Cool. All right. Thanks for listening. Okay. And we're done.